Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, On Revival and Courage, Anne Lamott explores the tough questions that many of us are grappling with. How can we recapture the confidence we once had as we stumble through the dark times that seem increasingly bleak? As bad news piles up from climate crises to daily assaults on civility, how can we cope? Worse, yes, do we start to get our world and joy and hope and our faith in life itself back with our sore feet, hearing loss, stiff fingers, poor digestion, stunned minds, broken hearts. We begin, Lamott says, by accepting our flaws and embracing our humanity. And she says, yes, these are times of great illness and distress, yet the center may just hold. And Lamott is author of New York Times bestsellers, Hallelujah Anyway, Help Thinks Wow, Small Victories, Some Assembly Required, Grace Eventually, Bird by Bird and Operating Instructions. She's also the author of seven novels, including Imperfect Birds and Rosie, a past recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and an inductee into the California Hall of Fame. Uh, she lives in Northern California. Well, first, it's not just marketing materials. I think uh, for many people, the sentence, the new Anne Lamott, is accompanied by an exclamation point. Um, and I wonder what you, what, what do you try to provide people? What do you think people are looking for? They're you know, eagerly awaiting your, your next book, usually. Well, I think that I write so much about hope that if people get the book on a bad day, I think that um, they're looking for just reasons to hope. Um, in the midst of of this kind of endless bad news of the last year, and before that, you know the UN climate change reports and the Australia on fire, and, and then California on fire, and where I live, and um, it's easy to feel really defeated. In fact, that's how I ended up writing *Dust Night Dawn*. Was that two? Uh, the last book I wrote, the subtitle was um, *Thoughts on Hope*. Although I orig- originally wanted to call the book *Doomed: <laughs> Thoughts on Hope*, because I, <laughs> the world is just so scary. But the publisher didn't think that was going to be a big seller. So, um, but everywhere I went on book tour, people felt so scared and sad and angry and didn't have any way anything to do with these feelings um, that um, would decrease the, this defeatedness. And so I just started writing a book on where I, on renewal, the subtitles on revival and courage, but it's really on restoration and renewal. There's a great um, line in, I think it's in Proverbs, in the Hebrew Bible, and it says that God will restore what the locusts have taken away. And that was sort of the theme of this book, is that how how are we restored? How can we actually think that all that's been taken away will be restored? And so, you know, that's what I set out to write. So I think when people think there's a new book by me, they also think that I'm pretty funny, you know, even my son thinks I'm marginally funny on a good day. And um, and that laughter is not only carbonated holiness, but as Trevor Noah said recently, when you're laughing with someone, you know you're sharing something. And I think that's such a great feeling for a, um, a writer and her audience to just share a laugh together. And, and it changes us, you know, molecularly to, to laugh a little. 
And that, uh, I guess, that's present. I guess we experience that, right? Uh, even in <laughs> doom and gloom, and, and as since your last book has gotten even darker, right? Um, but but yeah. that that's a natural part of us if we let it out. Is it the laughter? And... Well, I think that if we have. Um, a couple of cool friends in the world. I've always maintained that that is the secret of life to getting through anything is to just have a couple of cool friends and maybe a younger brother or, you know, maybe a random sister or whatever. But if there are a couple people you can just tell anything to that, you know, how enraged you are that day or how you absolutely will never forgive Aunt Blanche or how um, or whatever and the person just nods and they say you know what I just totally get it (laughs) (laughs) and then they tell their version of that lack of forgiveness or that feeling really victimized and self-righteous and it makes you laugh and then that you're laughing and then you're laughing together and uh, it's just like medicine so um I mean, things just have been, since I finished the book a year ago, absolutely finished it, even the edit of it, uh, the pandemic broke forth, so I didn't, it turned out I hadn't quite finished the book, and I went back, and, um, but the thing is that all of these things hold true for coming through this pandemic together, and it really has been about a year on the nose since I think San Francisco was shut down early March. And um, and so we, you know, you do the next right thing. You tell people how you're really feeling. You rely on a couple of friends. You, of course, for me, um, if I have a, a good book in front of me, I'm home free. <laughs> if I have a book that I'm loving that I'm going to crawl in bed with that night, then the world really can't tear me down too far. And um, we laugh together. We, we turn to funny things. We binge on funny shows. We. Um, we get together um, from six feet apart wearing our masks and we make the universal sign of the hug, you know, arms crossed and hugging from six or ten feet away. And we say, I'm glad to see you. And they say, I'm so glad to see you. And then that is part of the solution. And now, of course, with and I'm older than you are, um, and so I got both of my vaccines. I got the second one a few days ago. My husband got his um, Friday, and, and, and that is definitely, I'll tell you for listeners who haven't gotten their vaccines, you will soon. Don't give up. Even if you're signed up a couple places, you'll get a call before your appointment, and they'll say, we have extra here. Can you be here in 45 minutes? And um, don't give up, and you will, and you will, you are going to be safe. We're going to help keep you safe. And um, that, boy, did that change my uh, perspective more than just about anything I can think of was my first vaccination shot. I didn't, I felt like I didn't even need a car to get home from the hospital. You know, I could just fly home, so... <laughs> You know, but every day, if you look around, it's like this guy, uh, forgot his name, he was a priest who helped Bill Wilson get Alcoholics Anonymous off the ground in 1935. He was not an alcoholic, but he said to Bill, sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. And um, and I love that line so much because, you know, the world is a messy place and your glasses get very smudged by, you know, this endless data stream and this endless amount of change and bad news and, you know, people going so hungry in this country and all over the world. But then if you put your new pair of glasses on, you, first of all, you see it's spring again and that 
the daffodils are out, which are always, uh, I don't know if they're in Utah, but they are here. And they're such a hilarious little sight gag, you know, with those gigantic noses and those bright colors. And, and grass is breaking through the rocky dirt. And grass is bra- little green shoots are breaking through concrete again. And so if you put the as an act of, as a radical act, if you intentionally put on your good pair of glasses, you see a couple things. You see beauty all around you if you look up and around, and you see people that you could actually help. Who uh, you you know you you get a link to a food pantry in Houston. You get a link to a food pantry in Peru, and you send them twenty five dollars. Or you do some anonymous loving things for people. You get really happy again. That's and that's something you write about. It's kind of a it's a theme through through the books through your books. Um, what what does that do? Makes you happy again? What? Uh, how does that make you happy again? Serving. Well, if you want to do a loving thing, if you want to have loving feelings, which for me is what heaven is like, to just for my heart to be really warm and open and compassionate and just tender instead of closed off, you you take the action. You know, figure it out is not a good slogan. Um, you take the action, and then the insight follows. So you do a bunch of loving things. You call or you go visit the aunt at the uh, in the parking lot at the care facility, you know, and you and you and you swing by Safeway on the way there, and you buy her an orchid, even though she's not going to be able to water it to remember to water it. And uh, that's not your business, you know, not your not your circus, not your monkey. Your business is to spread some love and hope. So you bring the orchid to your aunt and um, it fills her with hope and love and then there's hope and love in the environment because you brought it and uh, and you get to kind of splash around in it for a little while and it's just my experience I've been sober 35 years since I was 32 and I thought that that the way that you filled up these Swiss cheese holes in your soul and yourself was by getting more, by accomplishing more, by being more, more this, more respected, more acclaimed, more, you know, and it turned out that it was an inside job all along and that you, uh, you fill up I, paradoxically by giving away, by being a service, by, by, you know, you go to the, you go to the St. We have a St. Vincent de Paul place here where they feed several hundred people even during the pandemic a day, and you either go there if, if if it's safe for you to be there, and you and you dole out food, and you look each person in the eye, and you say, "How are you doing? I'm so glad to see you." And if it's not safe for you to be there, if you have, if you're immunocompromised or or you know the county isn't allowing it, you go by. Uh, Andronico's and you fill up two bags with canned goods and box goods and you go to the outdoor um, pantry over in the canal where they have a extremely heightened um, rate of, of um, infection because it's where all the service workers are and all the people who can't not work during the quarantine and you know what you do what's possible but uh, once again, figure it out is not a good slogan. So if you are driving around dropping off bags of really delicious, nutritious canned foods, or you're, you're bringing, you know, one thing I did last week, I was so cranky. I felt like I was really, I said to my husband, I feel so crunchy today. And I went to the 
our little storage bin, and we have blankets here that we don't use. There are so many blankets on every bed, and um, but we might have spent good money for them or we really loved them once. We don't use them, and so we washed them all. We folded them up. I put a ribbon around one of them, and I took them to Goodwill, which is um, about 45 minutes away where they still have a drop-off. And I did not try to figure out how I feel about Goodwill. I did not. I don't try to figure out how I feel about you know the Red Cross and whether or not the right amount of money goes to those suffering. I just give. That's what my business is. And so when I dropped off all these really good blankets, part of me wanted to snatch them back, you know, because mm-hmm. they still had years of use in them. But you know what? It's been a very cold, very dark winter. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I got so happy that day. So that's a wonderful example. You're listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is the writer Anne Lamott. Her new book is titled Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and uh, Courage. Uh, note here before we go to break that uh, the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City is welcoming uh, Anne Lamott uh, for a virtual event. Uh, so you don't have to be in Salt Lake uh, area to uh, participate in this. Uh, this event will feature Anne Lamott in conversation with uh, Frank Rich, uh, who is writer-at-large with New York Magazine. This is a virtual pre-recorded event. It'll take place on Zoom, but you must, must purchase a hard copy uh, book of Dust Night Dawn from the King's English Bookshop uh, to participate. You'll be emailed the Zoom meeting link within 24 hours of event start time. Uh, so just contact King's English Bookshop uh, for that. That's an opportunity for you, uh, another opportunity to interact with uh, Anne Lamott. We'll have more with Anne Lamott following this break. Writer Anne Lamott is with us for the hour. She's author of New York Times bestsellers, Hallelujah Anyway, Help, Thanks, Wow, Grace Eventually, Bird by Bird, Operating Instructions, among other books. And the latest book is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and uh, Courage. I just want to read this paragraph. This is from the section of the book, uh, Lunch Muddy Faith. Uh, you talk about a friend. You said, she told me not long ago, I'm not suicidal, but sometimes I wish I was dead. And then you go on to say, this is the point beyond exhaustion, when you can't see how you'll ever fill up again. And then she does, through what she calls lunch money faith. So, yeah, yeah tell me about lunch money faith. Well, her son was dying. She's um, in her, her son just died six weeks ago, but he'd been sick. He was 23. He'd been sick for... Um, 13 years with a brain cancer, and um, and she taught me that, and I would say, are you okay, are you okay, all the, you know, all these years and months, and she'd say, the other part of, um, in that chapter that you read from is that she said, I keep having to re, uh, reimagine what okay means, and she said, like, one day she said, I mentioned this in the book, my son is making art with people who really love him. You know, he's he's making art with a group of other kids with um, brain injury, with people who really love them. And so, yeah, I'm okay. And um, that was such a profound idea that you change the goal po- goalposts of okay. And um, but lunch money faith means that you got exactly the right amount. <laughs> you know, and there's not you know you get when I was a child when I was coming up, it was fifty cents for a hot dog 
a bag of chips and these orange drinks that were so cold and so delicious. And you always got 50 cents. Like, that's what it cost. Your parents didn't give you 80 cents or 30. They gave you enough and the exact right amount. So that's what she meant by lunch money faith was that in in spite of it all and, and, you know, the odds being so against that family, they had enough faith every day. They had enough um, to feel safe and um, tended to and even confident that they'd be provided for. Mm. Uh, Just over the page, um, of course, there are nuggets all over here. I just wanted... um... I'll just read this. This is a paragraph. Uh, so you were, uh, you say, a few weeks after your wedding. And by the way, um, married first time, right? Uh, a couple of years ago? Right. Congratulations. Two years ago. Two three, years, I got yeah. married three days after um, I got my first Social Security check. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yeah. That's great. Thank um, you. Uh, so you'd, uh, this, uh, at this point, you're at a spiritual retreat in Maui. You said you were very, very tired. I'll just read this. I did the only thing yeah. I know how to do. I said it. I told the truth. I went and found Neil, your husband, and uh, even though I worried he'd have buyer's remorse, I told him. I cried. 90% of the time, this is the solution. Tell it. Cry if you can. And if you can't sit in a dejected posture, <laughs> hunched over, and stay with this for a while. It'll shift. It'll become less acute. So tell it. Cry if you can. I guess that's uh, the advice. Yeah, that you... Uh... You say it out loud, you stop faking it, you stop pretending that everything's okay. This was, uh, I was teaching at this uh, workshop, this conference in Maui, the world's most beautiful, beautiful place, and yet I was exhausted. I'd been teaching for too long. I'd, um, I mean, too many days in a row, and I was just in extreme despair. And it was scary. I was in my hotel room. I write about this in Death Night Dawn, and I was just thinking about swimming out to sea because I just was so pooped. And um, But, you know, there's a great acronym in the recovery movement for fear. Um, some of them are, uh, you know, like forget everything's all right or um, uh, forget everything and run. But the one I love is the frantic effort to appear recovered. <laughs> And when I need to make help everybody see that I'm just doing just fine, not having any problems, I have all the energy in the world, I could teach till the cows come home, blah, 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 I'm doomed because I'm I'm not in truth. I'm not in reality. And if I tell someone, like sometimes my friend Janine, whose son died, she'll call or I'll call her and we'll say, I hate everyone and I hate all of life. And the other one will say, oh, I'm so glad you called. I felt that way on um, Sunday. I think we need to go to Target, or I think we need to go overeat. We need to go get some Safeway carrot cake. And, um, but if, and if I just tell the truth, if I don't have that frantic effort to appear recovered and doing just fine, thank you, then there's hope and there's help. And somebody might say, oh, great, what, what, we, what, can, what do you need? Can I bring you a lovely cup of tea? Do you want to go um, waste a whole ton of, want to go to a bookstore with me? You know, which is like bookstores are basically like church. And, um, and then if you just tell the truth, then you can be helped. You can be, you can get gentle and loving company, and you may even get in a few laughs together. By the way, uh, speaking of your marriage, I, I love the passage. You, you recount an experience where you've gone to, I think, give a talk, and uh, then your flight's delayed and delayed again, 
um, you, you, this is a couple of months, I think, after you're married. You say, I thought being newly married meant you were exuberant most of the time, even if things went bad. Uh, so you call a friend and, and uh, you know, unload, and, uh, and she says, oh, you're right on schedule. Yeah, exactly. And she said the most amazing thing. She said, I think you've forgotten that Neil is your friend. It hadn't occurred to me. Because when I wrote that section, it's the very first chapter in the book, I, had, I was really um, crunchy and cranky with him because I was down at the San Diego airport and he was not responding to my predicament and all the flight delays appropriately and and then he hadn't texted and sympathetically enough. And, and I called my friend. I did what I've learned to do since I got sober, which was pick up the 200-pound phone and call someone, call a really safe person. And, and she said, I think you've forgotten that he's your friend. I literally smited or smote my own forehead at the airport after four flight delays, including one overnight. And I forgot. And I went, oh, right. <laughs> Oh, now I remember, and that's why I married him, and um, and then I got really happy again. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you have a you know I guess this is probably what you told your friend a whole list of complaints at that time. What uh, my favorite really resonates. Uh, you say when I'm explaining my position, he tilts his head in a domineering male way, and if you read between the lines, <laughs> you can tell he's thinking. You can't possibly think that. <laughs> this is one of your right. one of your complaints. Because if you thought that, it would be so stupid that I wouldn't even be able to believe that we were married. But uh, yeah, and also, you know, it's funny because we've been in quarantine. I did, when when we when I agreed to get married, I didn't expect to be in a quarantine with him for a year. You know, and um, and so someday, a lot of the time, it's just wonderful, and we really do have fun. And he works hard, and and he's in his office a lot, and we hike most days. And um, but then, and and so I'm very grateful. And then some days, the sound of him chewing bacon will make me just crazy and i'll feel like nuts i'll feel like it's so awful that protestants can't get annulments and maybe i'll switch to consult i'll convert so i can annul get an annulment because i can't do the bacon with him and uh you know it's so funny it's just relationships are hard and quarantine is hard and uh, but the whole book dust night dawn is about that this is hard stuff i mean Turning climate change around, uh, helping somebody, helping a young person in your family who's going down the tubes or down a very dark road, getting off alcohol or booze or eating disorder, it's hard. But you know what? We're good at hard. We just have to stop pretending it's easier or shaming ourselves because um, we're finding it tough. And, and it is tough, and you just do the next right thing. You know, I wrote a whole book on writing, Bird by Bird, that you do it bird by bird. You do it one small section at a time, one small action at a time. That's how you write a whole book, is a passage at a time, a memory at a time. And you let yourself do it really badly. But so that is true of of all the stuff that we do is hard. You do the next right thing. You take, I remember when I first got sober, because I was raised by atheists and intellectuals, and I'm grateful for that because I became a great reader, a voracious reader, but it didn't, wasn't really very helpful in any other ways. But um, 
we believed that you that there were codes you broke and that you could figure things out and that we sort of my parents worshiped the the god of the new york times you know and every morning it's like we bowed down before the new york times when we were six and seven years old and um and it never really helped anyone in my family this intellectual striving and um and figuring it out like when i was still drinking i um I just kept thinking there was a code I could break. I figured it out so I could only drink four or five drinks a night. I was also bulimic. I believe there was a code I could figure out where I could um, be at an okay weight, eat what I like, but not have this horrible, scary secret. And you know what someone said? I started to say 35 years ago, they said, you take the action and then the insight follows. Well, for me, because I'm pretty anxious. I'm a lot more anxious than the average bear, and I was, I sort of came to earth this way, and I'm, um, you know, I'm kind of worried, and I'm just the way I am. Uh, the action for me is all, almost always to do something that's kind of radical self-care, because I'm very good at taking care of everyone else. You know, I was in my family, I was sort of like the flight attendant to the family. Like, I could do mixed drinks for people when I was seven. And I had a little clipboard. I had an older brother and a younger brother. I still do. And parents who were in a very unhappy marriage. And I thought it was my responsibility to help everybody feel better about their lives. You know, I had a caseload when I weighed 50 pounds. So um, that has been, it's been a long road back to heal from that belief that I'm not only, I'm responsible for their unhappiness, Happiness, and I'm also responsible to try to help them get happier. And and the the women who helped me get sober said, "No, you take an action to taking care of your own self. You go for a hike, or you take a long hot bath, or you just put on clothes that you feel really pretty in. You put in your." put on your very favorite blouse and some really cute silly socks and then or you put on a little lipstick you know joy is the best medicine the best makeup you get happy and then you look pretty and then you feel better about everything but that was not what i was raised on that that that, the idea that you did gentle loving things both for yourself and for other people and uh, and like jesus you forgive the unforgivable including yourself and little by little you start to get peace of mind and you start to really enjoy being here because you realize you're not in charge of helping everybody um, make better decisions for their life. Like this is the last thing. I'm sorry to go on so long, but I went to India a few years ago. It's so chaotic. I mean, I loved it more than anywhere else I've ever been, but it is so disorganized. You know, it's a billion and a half people. And I found, with my Western um, thinking, I had so many good ideas on how everybody could get better organized, you know. And I was sorry I hadn't brought my clipboard and my post-its because I could get small groups of women together. and And I had to bust myself and say, Annie, stop. You know, India is a song that never ends. They've done fine without you for 5,000 years, and I think they'll be okay when you leave. But at the same time, take the action and the insight follows. So I left behind every single thing I had brought except for the clothing I'd wear on the plane because when all else fails, if you do loving things, you get loving feelings. I left two pairs of shoes. I left my very favorite gap blouse. I left everything to people on the street. So, you know, all truth is paradox. So 
That's kind of what I know about everything. Yeah, very good. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and uh, we have with us for the hour the writer Anne Lamott. Uh, her latest book is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. Uh, a note here that uh, you can interact with or view a uh, an, an interview with uh, Anne Lamott. A virtual pre-recorded event will take place on Zoom, and that will feature Anne Lamott uh, in conversation with Frank Rich, writer-at-large with New York Magazine. And so you can get access uh, to that virtual event by purchasing a hard copy, a copy book, uh, a copy of uh, Dust Night Dawn from King's English Bookshop. So just uh, contact them for uh, more information that's available to you. We'll have more with Anne Lamott following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. Anne Lamott is a past recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, she lives in Northern California. Her latest book is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. I want to uh, just quote a couple sentences here. This really struck me. This is from the Coda, Big Heart, near the end of the book. And you're out at a retreat, I think, um, and you meet this couple. You, you really like the woman. You're not wild about the husband. And then there's a, an at least potentially embarrassing incident where you bust into their room by mistake. Um, so, oh, the, yeah, yeah. So, so the next morning, you hope that they don't show up, uh, you know, for breakfast, but of course they do. There they are. And uh, she, <laughs> she, she comes over to you. Uh, I'll quote this. She looked at me with such kindness that I teared up and prayed frantically for her to leave. She touched my hand, rubbed my knuckles, and then turned to go. To be looked at that way from someone's heart can change you molecularly if you're not careful. That's a, that's yeah. powerful, but actually really seeing each other, right? Yeah, and looking at each other with love instead of, uh, you know, I had burst into her room drunk in the middle of the night and um, and covered with mud. I'd fallen off a cliff, which I will leave to your um, listeners to read this whole story by themselves. And uh, and she didn't look at me and roll her eyes, and or she didn't look at me and give me a little pep talk on alcoholism or or, or where she thought I might be able to, um, you know, get go into rehab. She just touched my hand, and she looked at me really gently. It was so weird. Uh, you know, my church um, and I, when we're not in quarantine, do a, uh, have a convalescent home ministry at this one joint about half hour away. And really what we do, there's, well, there might be three of us that go. We're, we're a church of 30, and there'll be 20 people there and in various states of ruin, you know, it's a, and um, and we'll just touch it. We'll just touch people's hands, or I'll touch people's faces with the back of my hand. I'll say, I am so glad to see you, because no one else is going to be saying that to them that day, you know? And then we sing with them, which is another really subversive way to change everybody's hearts and minds, that singing does something for us that really nothing else can do. gets in so deep into us, doesn't it? And um, and so that's what that woman did that day when and uh, and uh, it changed me. Of course, her husband glared at me. I said I described him as looking at me like a reptile, but um, that was not my problem. That was his. Um, 
you are um, not only just popular on the coasts, you, you describe yourself as, uh, you know, left-wing. In fact, in one interview, you describe yourself as an extremely left-wing Christian. Um, and so my question pertains to, you, you do have a lot of fans in what we euphemistically and patronistically call flyover country, uh, red states. Probably, uh, you know, some of your fans are, are Trump supporters. Uh, so my question is, how do you... Uh, you know, if you, you had a chance to be open, I don't know if, if politics comes up, but uh, you know, when you when you go out and give presentations, but how do we bridge this divide? It, it seems like more and more we just can't even talk to each other. But I think we're starting to. You know, I I, I have two friends who are very very conservative, uh, and my older brother is is a uh, really born to die fundamentalist. And I'm more of a progressive, do-gooder, um, sort of activist, sort of feed women and children kind of person. But um, I have two very, very conservative friends, and um, and they were heartbroken, like everyone was, by the last year, by both COVID and by the um, the response and the um, the grief and the just extreme confusion of it all. And so we are able to talk about what we together might do to help alleviate some of the, you know, the extreme division and hostility that, you know, this country split down the middle 50-50. I'll tell you one thing I really recommend is medicine. And this book was written by Arlie Hochschild, and I think it's called Strangers in Their Own Land. I'm almost positive. And it's from a few years ago, and it's during the, I think, early years of Trump. And she's got, she goes to... Um, I think, I'm so sorry, I read it a long time ago, but I think it's um, uh, Louisiana and, wait, where's Baton Rouge again? Uh, yeah, Louisiana, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and she goes into these really small, extremely fundamentalist and conservative enclaves, and she gets to know the people. You know, what a concept. She goes to meal. she has meals with them. She goes to church with them. She listens. And it creates such a bridge of love. She's a famous sociologist at UC Berkeley, you know, the, just probably the most liberal um, bastion um, of, uh, that you can think of in America, and the sociology department at UC Berkeley. And they all fell in love because they all just sat and listened to each other. And they shared their experience, strength, and hope, and they cried, and they didn't get into trying to convince each other of their politics. You're never going to, you know? And it doesn't I mean, why would you? And it's just kind of abusive to try to get somebody to believe what you believe. And, and another thing is it doesn't work, unfortunately. You know, people always say when you're... Um, trying to get somebody to get sober, it's like um, getting in the getting in the mud with a pig and wrestling with the pig, and the pig loves it, and you just end up hurt and dirty, you know? You don't convince the pig to, to live a different way, and uh, it's just so crazy for you to do it. It's so crazy for me to push back my sleeves and try to convince people, say, right off the top of my head, that uh, of a $15 an hour minimum wage. I'm not going to abuse people that way. They're reading what I'm reading. They're reading what they're reading. And they get to think what they think. And I get to think what I think. And so I really believe that what Arlie Hochschild did was so profound, which was to show up. 
I mean, before I turned on Woody Allen years ago, he used to say that 80% of life is just showing up, and I absolutely live by that still. And to show up and to ask people questions and to listen, not try to change them, to eat with them, to cry with them, to, to worship with them, to hike with them, you know? I mean, to me, it's the most subversive work you could do, and that is, I believe, what is healing, even as we speak, healing this country right now. And and this is why I like the title, Best Night Dawn, because I felt that we were in the darkest night America had ever been in. But, you know, I also feel like, first of all, it's springtime, and that helps enormously, but that the dawn is coming, you know, the... Things are a little bit different now, and um, and we've been through just a l- literal nightmare, and um, and we looked around, and we're doing what Mr. Rogers' mother always said to do. You know, you look for the helpers, you look for the people who are bringing in food and supplies and um, and their own selves to be used, and um, and helping take care of the people who've been so battered and terrified by by what they've seen or what was done to them or what they felt they lost. And so um, it's such a second wind, and and I do feel like the dawn has come. But I want to tell you one quick thing, too, um, that people ask where the title came from. Um, I discovered about a year ago that twilight, which is one of my favorite words, means both the dusk, when that very trippy mystical light is fading and we're about to be in the dark of night, and twilight means the dawn, that really trippy mystical light before dawn actually breaks. And um, and I just love that so much, you know, that it's that we cycle through, you know, and that in the in the dark night of the soul, you might remember or somebody might remind you that the sun always comes up again. So, um, anyway, that's the, the path I'm on is really not, I mean, I do register vote, voters guilty as charged, but I'll, I'll register everybody. I don't ask what they're registering as, but that we, um, that we listen more and that we look into people's eyes and we say, tell me about, or when do you first remember feeling, you know, this or that, uh, this hostility towards, or, or you say, you know what, what you just said, I have that exactly, the details are different. I have that same resentment. I have that same lack of forgiveness. I have that same judgment. It's different. The details are different. But I know, isn't it painful? Isn't it painful? And then you laugh together, and then you're halfway home. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. Uh, and you're experiencing this with your friends. And I'm experiencing this with my friends that you, uh, you know, there's just a famous saying in recovery that you don't compare your insides to other people's outsides because other people's outsides are always sort of um, curated, you know, like people's Facebook pages are curated, so you really only see the good. But that you don't, that the compare, the compare leads to despair. And if you're comparing, you're despairing. And if you are instead listening, and and maybe touching if you can again when maybe when all this is over when you're gently touching someone's hand or the side of their face you're not despairing anymore you're um you're opening you're softening you're awakening and uh, god that's a wonderful feeling we're uh, coming near the end of t- uh, our time here uh, i just want to get one more thing in here's really struck me 
you say, I try to help teenagers learn to pay attention. Attention is caffeine. Um, and then in a, in a parentheses, this really strikes me. You say, the most attentive people I know are bird watchers. They're less sleepy as a whole <laughs> than the general population. Tell me about that. Well, my dad was a bird watcher. Um, and, uh, and I learned, you know, and that's where the title of my writing book comes from, it, Bird by Bird, because my older brother could not get a report done that was due in California. It's a fourth grade term, pa- the first term paper you ever write. And my dad said, just take it bird by bird. Just study one bird in Roger Tory Peterson or an Audubon book, and then draw a picture for me and tell me in your old, own words about the chickadee or the dark-eyed junco or the great blue heron. That's how you write a whole book. That's how you write a whole term paper. And that is how one way to go through life is to just look at one bird, one bird, and notice it today when you leave your house. And you don't go like, oh, that's kind of a medium red backyard finch. You know, we have all these little tiny red well, the males are red, you know, the little finches, uh, the the girl finches are all in these horrible gray sweat clothes, but we have a lot of males popping around in the bright red, and you study one bird, what could you find out about finches today? Or even, you don't even have to find out, you just look, you just gaze, then they fly off, and you're happier. I said in some book or other that if birdsong were the only evidence we have that there's a greater reality, an invisible reality, maybe a more true reality, it would be proof enough for me that you do it one bird at a time. Uh, well, finally, uh, Anne Lamott, what, uh, I know usually once a book is out, you're probably working on something else. What are you, what are you working on? Well, I'm theoretically working on something yeah. else. But um, I never get much work done for the two or three months before publication because you just get so anxious and so... And also, um, all the magazines have a lead time of a couple of months or three months, so you're already starting um, promotion, which is like my least favorite thing about life, is tooting my own horn. I actually really hate it. And um, But I have an idea, um, and, I've been, and I've been taking down... I've been writing these little passages, you know, just like what I can see that day through the one-inch picture frame. I can see this one vision. I can see one memory of being out at Inverness with my Uncle Don when I was six years old. I can see this one um, story taking place in an elevator when I'm with the one person I refuse to ever forgive, and the elevator breaks, right? And I'm with them in the elevator. I can do that. It's two pages. So I've been doing these two-page things, and if... If you held a gun to my head, I could not tell you what it will turn out being. You know, I uh, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, and I know at some point something. This is my I just this Death Night Dawn is my nineteenth book, and something I don't even know what you'd call it. Holy Spirit or the creative energy or the, the Como Sadit will tug on the sleeve of my shirt that I'm wearing and, and it'll say, let's do, why don't we try a novel? It's been a while. Or it'll say, why don't we do one more book, one of these faith books? And I'll go, okay, <laughs> I'm in. And that's how it works. Well, we'll look forward to that. And in the meantime, uh, uh, Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage is out. Uh, and available everywhere. Uh, Anne Lamott, always uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope you have a good day. You, you too. You too. And uh, thank you. Our thanks to Anne Lamott. Uh, you're listening to Access Utah. And uh, appreciate her taking some time uh, with us. Uh, just to mention here at the end uh, that the King's English Bookshop is presenting a virtual event. Anne Lamott in conversation with Frank Rich. Um, who is uh, writer-at-large with uh, New York Magazine. And that is a virtual pre-recorded event to take place on Zoom. You must purchase a hard copy, hardcover copy of Dust Night Dawn from King's English Bookshop to participate. Uh, and you can contact King's English for more information on that opportunity. Well, here at the end of the program, we are beginning a new season of Beehive Archive. And uh, Beehive Archive, if you're not familiar, if you're a longtime listener to UPR, you know what Beehive Archive is, but if you maybe just uh, tuned in, uh, it's a three-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah history. Uh, reading their description, Utah Humanities description, which produces this, uh, with all the history and none of the dust, Beehive Archive is a fun way to catch up on Utah's uh, past. So you can hear this on Mondays and All Things Considered here on UPR Tuesdays in Morning Edition, and Wednesdays, beginning today in Access, Utah. So here is Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Water is a key part of Utah's recreation scene, whether you're skiing, snowboarding, sledding, or ice skating. This week, learn about how Utah's residents used to love their winter thrills so much that they shut down entire city streets to make way for snowy fun. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. These days, snowy roads in Utah are paved and salted, but around the turn of the 20th century, streets across the Wasatch Front were closed to traffic to encourage winter fun. Winter nights produced laughing, yelping, and screaming as Utah families raced down icy hills, ice skated across homemade rinks, or sang carols while slaying city streets bundled up in warm quilts. Some cities used natural wonders for their winter activities, like ice skating on the frozen over Bear River. Oftentimes, the place to cool off in the summer was the same place to play in winter, like the Kimball Mill in Bountiful or Silver Lake up Big Cottonwood Canyon. During long winter nights, ice rinks were often illuminated with burning tires to create a romantic atmosphere. Some folks went out of their way to manufacture winter fun where they could, like in Provo, where locals tried to flood a baseball diamond to create an ice rink, but needed to shade it during the day with burlap curtains to prevent the ice from melting. Another popular winter sport was sledding, known back then as coasting or shinning. It was most common on steep, snow-covered city streets and was eventually regulated after a series of accidents. Some towns charged a $20 fine for sledders caught in the act, while others actually designated entire neighborhoods for sledding. In Park City, sledders had to skirt around regulations to get their runs in. They developed codes to signal each other. 
Chisel meant law enforcement was coming. Shovel meant pause the fun for a moment. And pick meant all was clear to keep on coasting. No one sledding through Utah city streets ever imagined it would be completely banned. But eventually it did decline in popularity as automobiles became more widely used. People began to turn to the mountains for their downhill adventures and have been skiing Utah's powdery snow ever since. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. So that's Beehive Archive, and we're happy to have it back on Utah Public Radio. It'll come your way Wednesdays at the end of Access Utah. So hope you'll tune in for that. Uh, in the meantime, uh, coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll be talking with the writer Libby Copeland in an op-ed for the New York Times titled America's Brutal Racial History is Written All Over Our Genes. Libby Copeland writes, the debate around race consuming America right now is coinciding with the technological phenomenon, at-home genetic testing kits, revealing many of us are not who we thought we were. Some customers of the major DNA testing companies, which collectively have sold 37 million of these kits, are getting results to surprise them. We talked with Libby Copeland, author of The Lost Family, last year, and we'll check back in with her tomorrow on the program. On Monday on Access Utah, we're working on a program recapping this year's legislative session from the Utah Legislature. Uh, the session ends this week, and uh, we'll recap it, uh, hopefully, on Monday. And then on Wednesday, um, we'll be talking with Brian Alexander. His new book is titled The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. It uh, follows the struggle for survival of one small-town hospital and takes readers into the world of American medical industry. Brian Alexander, The Hospital, that's coming up on Wednesday. And we thank you very much for listening today.